0: Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dratzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 54. Now, I have a little bit of an announcement to make, I suppose. Maybe it's an apology or something like that, though I don't owe you guys anything. Um, but uh, sorry about being gone for the last couple of weeks. I I didn't announce that uh, we were not going to have Counterpunch Radio for a few weeks um, for a variety of reasons. It wasn't just because I'm a jerk, although I am that in many ways. Uh I've had some pretty significant life changes in the last couple of weeks, including the birth of a child, including a major move, and uh, all of those things have uh, definitely taken up my time, and my energy, and my focus, and I wasn't really able to put together the interviews, organize them, record them, edit them, all of that stuff, so um, I do apologize for kind of disappearing for a couple of weeks without any uh, announcement beforehand, but at the same time, all all's well that ends well, and now I will be coming to you from an undisclosed location somewhere deep in the mountains outside of New York City. Uh, not really, but. Yeah, sort of. Anyway, um, I want to, as always, remind people, counterpunch is so important to us. Look at this presidential election, the insanity that we're reading about every single day, and I gotta tell you, despite all the haters, despite all of the tumult, despite all of the, uh, you know, uh, dissatisfied, I guess now former counterpunchers, look at who has come out smelling like a rose after this election. Look who called out Bernie Sanders and, and And made sure that they spoke truth about Bernie Sanders. Look who has talked about Hillary Clinton and hammered her every single day. Who's hammering Trump every single day. It's Counterpunch. Always on the front lines. Always taking the uncompromising position. I am very proud to be part of Counterpunch, of the Counterpunch Project. One of the ways, if you would like to do that as well, you can support Counterpunch by getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's a very easy way to support Uh, counterpunch also it's great get a magazine in the mail keep it on your toilet keep it next to your uh you know whatever toilet i guess um various other places such as the bathroom i'm really hinting at something here uh counterpunch is great Support it if you can. Support this show if you can. Give us a positive review on iTunes. Uh, spread us around by email, on Twitter, on Facebook, what what have you. The more, the merrier. I'd like to try to grow the audience as much as possible, and hopefully I'm bringing high-quality content on a consistent basis with high-quality content in mind. Let me turn to my high-quality guest for this week. Uh, he is the inimitable, dare I say, Rob Yuri. He is an author, author of the new book from Counterpunch, Zen Economics, very, very important book. I'm so thrilled to be able to speak with him today. Rob Yuri, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Um. So short and to the point. I like it. Let's begin. Um. I have a question, and I don't normally lead off this way, but I'm very interested in the the the, the title of this book. I want to get a sense of what exactly it means. I mean, I have some ideas what you mean by Zen economics, but I think that there might be sort of a uh, sort of an interplay between an implicit and explicit meaning of the title. So can we start there, tell people what you mean by Zen economics, why you call the book that?
1: Uh, that's an uh, an interesting point, Eric. I've gotten a question from a few different people. <clears throat> and um, I would start by saying that I'm not recreating a different economics. Um, uh, there is no Zen economics per se. Zen is an approach to the world. Um, that uh is up to uh, uh people who uh, care to think about such things to uh figure out but it's not an economics and it's not an analytical system whereas economics is and so um the point of the title and where Zen comes in is as a challenge to <clears throat> excuse me the basic approach to the world that um economics comes from um an analytical approach, but um, an analytical approach from a distance, from uh, uh, self-exile, if you will. And so the idea of Zen is to try to overcome that self-exile, to reunite with the world.
0: It's interesting because uh, a number of weeks ago I had on this show Jason Moore, whose book um, Capitalism in the Web of Life also kind of addresses a little bit of that sort of reconnecting uh, economics and reconnecting environmental issues with the notion of capitalism with how it is manifested and i saw a lot of that in your book as well this sort of this idea of an interplay between economics quote unquote as a science and economics is a living thing that interacts with human beings that interacts with the ecosystem with the environment and so forth uh it's
1: it's economics in a certain sense um the question that one of the questions that i was trying to answer with the book or at least um i get clues to is how it is that we can um resolve some of the um, leading crises of our time um nuclear weapons environmental destruction and a kind of alienation that i see amongst people um and uh the the uh, question would be how how is it that we um um, uh, can possibly change the way that we look at the world to uh, resolve these because the ways that we're trying to resolve them now really aren't working. Um, the problem with trying to resolve um, environmental destruction through capitalism, and this is the main uh, way that uh, the main uh, impediment and uh, the main way that uh, the place from which solutions are being proposed. It's a limited view of the world that uh, that is incapable of resolving the problems of environmental destruction and um, um, and so we need a different way to uh, relate to the world and to address the world and uh, so what I was trying to get behind was um, the background understanding of the world and philosophy and take that apart. Um I go through a lot of the history of philosophy and um, uh, history of history, if you will. Uh, to get to to try to explain how it is that we got to where we are, where there are only capitalist solutions to capitalist problems. Um, a lot of people don't see environmental destruction as necessarily a capitalist problem. There's the term anthropogenic that um, suggests that we're all um, equally, in some sense, Uh, contributing to uh, global warming. And that's, of course, ludicrous. Um, uh, People, uh, subsistence farmers in Zimbabwe aren't contributing to global warming. And um, so asking them to uh, change the way that they live isn't going to have any effect on it. If we uh, trace the actual um, contributors to uh, global warming, which would be uh, uh, greenhouse gases and different types of capitalist production, the uh, major environmental problems um, arose with the uh, uh, first industrial revolution and then really took off with the second industrial revolution. And so uh, as far as uh, resolving environmental destruction, continuing what it is that's been causing the problem uh, is an unlikely way to resolve, um, resolve it. And the problem with uh, looking for solutions within the frame of capitalism is that it's a closed system of logic. And so the idea of Zen, as it was applied to economics, is used to try to create a different way of relating to the world. And um, I, I, I went to the trouble of writing the book explain how I think this will uh, work and so it's it's not something that I can explain um, easily over the uh, in an interview here but um but the my point would be is that the problems uh, that are driving from capitalism have to be addressed through a completely different way of relating to the world um, and and so th- this was a major goal of the book.
0: Yeah and what's interesting too when you read the book is it's it's not only about um relating yeah. relating to the world but it's also about um I think you kind of have an interesting approach in framing questions of economics, because as you read through this book, you don't see much in the way of, you know, discussion of GDP numbers, discussion of, you know, growth curves and things like that. Instead, it's rooted in almost, I guess what you were just alluding to, almost like a a historiography, you know, that uh, connecting the sort of economic trajectory that has led us to this point with the political. Trajectory. So, for instance, one of the things that struck me was, you know, when you were talking about the Vietnam War and talking about the impact of the war, and you know how that led to a lot of the changes that we've seen over the course of the last four or five decades. Rather than say talking about an abstraction like the development of neoliberalism, you know, which is a bit more, I guess you could say, traditional economics. So, was that something you were going for, kind of getting? Away Away from a traditional economic explanation and sort of changing the language?
1: Well, I go to a great deal of trouble in the book to explain why the traditional economics, the approach, and the results are um, pretty well predefined. Uh, economics comes out of a particular um, hi- historical development of Western philosophy, uh, Cartesian view of the world. And it's limited in in what it can explain and what economists can see. And so for any kind of a real explanation or even, if if you'll excuse the term, meta-explanation of economics, um, I had to look outside of um, um, the economic frame instead of uh, from within it uh, to develop a critique. And so those things, GDP, uh, the the criticisms of mainstream economic uh, measures, metrics, and the way that mainstream economists see the world um, are are, are all around us. But uh, just quickly, um, there are such limited views of the world. GDP is, uh, in order to understand it, which most people – which. the way that it's put forward uh, is not representative of what it actually means. Um, In order to understand it, you need to understand the intersection of uh, the money system and uh, production. And, and so it's, and so it's both very narrow in what it is that it represents and ludicr- ludicrously narrow in what it is that it, uh, people are really talking about or what they think that they're talking about when they're talking about GDP. And so uh, sticking with uh, the mainstream economic uh, paradigm, if you will, is, uh, is unduly limiting, and it really is to avoid um, uh, lo- looking at any of the issues that we live with in our own lives. Um, uh, GDP growth or or, or, um, uh, falling affects different people different ways, and it's a function of um, international economic relations that have developed over the last 500 years, 700 years or so, uh, more particularly uh, through the wars um, uh, of the last 150 years. And and so the the, the economics per se is... um, an avoidance it's, uh, of, of discussing the world, and it's a, an avoidance with a purpose. And the purpose is uh, to support the existing way of doing things. And so the question is, how is a serious critique going to come out of um, uh, a practice that exists to uh, support the existing way of doing things? all possible answers uh from that inter- endeavor are going to come back to ways to support the existing way of doing things. And on the one hand, uh the existing way of doing things, this huge uh, international economy that's intertwined uh that ties to what each of us do in our daily lives is um it's an abstraction that that um that um, can't, can't be addressed um, uh, without getting behind the the uh, preconceptions, the, the the underlying notions that contribute to it.
0: Yeah, indeed, and you know it's interesting as you were speaking there. I'm thinking of the sort of the political, the political equivalent of that. Right, is the sort of the notion that you're gonna you're gonna fix the political problems that we have by picking a Democrat. You know, the 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 idea that you're going to change the system by using the system, by working with the system, by using the tools that the system has sanctioned for you rather than actually uh, addressing the problems in a different sort of way outside of the traditional sphere of, call it controlled opposition. Uh,
1: that's a really good analogy, Art. And uh, that's it exactly. And so economics is... Uh, roughly analogous to Democrats versus Republicans, which um, uh, there's a narrow internal logic to that uh, back and forth, but there's a big bad world out there, um, and uh, Democrats versus Republicans are uh, a contrived uh, circumscription. They're they're a a bracket around the the, uh, broader uh, political possibilities. There, and uh, were it not for control of so much um, political and economic power that uh, they're vying for, which is really what makes Democrats and Republicans dangerous, um, were it not for that, the, the, the Democrats versus Republicans um, uh, 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 circle of logic would be ludicrous. It's, um, it, it's uh, so tightly defined and so ir- irrelevant to most people's lives. I've written a bit about this, but um, if uh, um, the U.S. has one of the lowest uh, voter turnouts in the uh, so-called developed world. And I talk to people all the time, uh, and this is anecdotal, of course, but the people who I speak with are busy with their own lives and or they don't see uh, Democrat versus Republican as being relevant to um, – Uh, the problems that they need uh, uh, solutions to. And so the question is, how do you bring about political uh, uh, difference, uh, uh, political outcomes that are relevant to most people, and it's not through the Democrats versus Republicans. They're there to limit um, the realm of possible solutions to what benefits the few people who benefit from uh, the Democratic versus Republican um, dichotomy there. And so in political terms, in the U.S., if we want to um, stand any chance of resolving political problems, it has to be outside of that frame. And then the question is, uh, where's the language to support uh, this politics outside of Uh, the the mainstream, and that's analogous to what I'm trying to accomplish with Zen Economics. How do we um, uh, undo the existing uh, understanding of the world that limits the way that we can see problems and, and see our place in the world to come up with real solutions? Um, Democrats versus Republicans aren't going to resolve uh, nuclear weapons. They're not going to resolve environmental, um, uh, uh, intending environmental catastrophe. They're not going to resolve the problems that are important to most people in their day-to-day lives. And the economic system that we have uh, is, in a lot of ways, designed not to resolve those things. And and so your your analogy is very
0: good. Yeah, it's almost as if it were it's almost as if it were a rigged game. <laughs> almost. <laughs> anyway, um but one of the things that comes to mind as well as as you were speaking about that, and actually I think it kind of dovetails with what you were just getting at, is this question of history. And um one of the one of the interesting things that I encountered actually throughout the book, almost kind of woven uh, into the narrative of this book, is this, this idea about the assumptions of capitalism essentially being anti-historical, I think that was the term you used or something along those lines, uh, in that they are sort of unnatural while being simultaneously touted as quote-unquote natural. You hear this all the time from the time you're a child, this very notion that capitalism is the natural state of things and that there is a a fundamental goodness to it because it is quote-unquote natural. So we have this sort of dichotomy in the book between the the natural and the unnatural, the historical and the anti-historical, and it's kind of a running theme. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, sure. And that's really one of the main entry points that I offer and that philosophers over the last hundred or so years have offered to uh, try to understand and get behind the premises that drive um, the the way that uh, we're taught to see the world or or the cultural understanding that's embedded. And this idea of um, uh, nature versus non-nature and um, static time versus historical time is uh, really fundamental to the ways that we're taught to see the world. Capitalism comes from um, a static view of the world. It comes from a particular understanding of time And this is one of the reasons why I haven't gone down the the philosophical uh, rabbit hole here in this conversation. I devote a lot of time in the book to it, and it takes a little bit of work to understand um, why this has any relevance uh, to uh, social philosophy or to economics. But the concepts of time at work, uh, the concept of time at work in economics, and really that defines the Western self in significant ways in the way that we understand ourselves economically and the way that we understand ourselves politically and how this fits into um, uh, our our broader understanding of the world comes from a particular conception of time. It comes from, and economics is deeply, deeply embedded in this way of understanding the world. And it's actually... Uh, a, a, a type of circular logic where economists believe that the world is this way and they construct or, or uh, design uh, economic systems uh, that uh, reconstitute this way of being that we confront this static notion of time. Uh, and, and the way that, uh, and the broader uh, sense of the self that is tied to the static con- conception of time. And I understand this is terrifically abstract right now, but um, but uh, where this comes to bear is in um, this disconnect that I believe a lot of people feel in their lives, and they seek to address it through d- different, uh, through religion, through. Uh, philosophy through different ways of trying to understand the world. But there's this um, disconnect between the the way that um, people relate to the world and in in an intellectual sense, in the senses that we're taught culturally to relate to the world, and the way that it feels to us. And I believe that this is uh, in part the difference between uh, this conceptual static time that's part of the political philosophy and economic philosophy and the way that we actually exist in the world. And, uh, for instance, um, uh, if we look at what contributes to uh, global warming here, in a really narrow sense, it's a lot of people going about their daily tasks that are very narrowly defined with no uh, conception of um, what this is all aggravating aggregating to aggravating as well huh. but but it it is um, it does aggregate, and so and so we can have this paradox where people are doing what is considered to be a, a, a productive work in our daily lives, and uh, everybody who's worked for a paycheck is told that what we do is in some sense productive and contributing to the system without subtracting back. Uh, out the uh, environmental destruction the militarism the um, uh, uh, racial, uh sexual uh, uh, what have you repression that we that um is brought output from from west the residual of western history and the way that we exist in the world here um and so the static notion of time ties to um, this uh, subject-object dichotomy, which the last century of philosophy, uh, uh, particularly continental philosophy, meaning European, um, uh, went through. And uh, early, I was thinking of this earlier today. In the 1970s, there was fairly clear understanding that the subject-object dichotomy that's a, function of this uh, understanding of time, it it doesn't make sense uh, philosophically, and it's an impediment to really engaging in the world. But that was lost uh, with this capital's revival, where there's a type of rationality that is um, posed from an inside that's looking outside to engage with the world. It's Cartesian dualism and apologies for being so abstract here, I don't know how to say this, read the book, and what what Eric was saying was that I give concrete examples, which is one of the things that helps tie this down, tie it to the world. But this dualism, uh, Vandana-Shiva, addressed this a number of years back as well, Uh, it, it leaves us dissociated from the world, and it's a function of this idea of time. That, um, that is anti historical and that um, uh, it, it comes from a particular a philosophic, philosophical view that doesn't make very much sense when people start, when it's really investigated. And so one of the goals of the book was to lay this out, lay how this concept of time has political content out, and what the political and e- economic implications are so I apologize for being so abstract here, but i don 't know how else to say this
0: no no it 's not it 's definitely not too abstract, and i mean i i was I was getting at precisely that because this you know this 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 dichotomy that you see throughout the book, I think it is you know i mean i'm not an expert on you know buddhist philosophy and 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 stuff but i mean that is one of the one of the central ideas actually running through many eastern religions and eastern philosophies the sort of the you know for for lack of a better example you know the sort of the yin and the yang uh the sort of the balance that uh that that exists and the balance that uh between this sort of this um historical understanding, quote-unquote, and an anti-historical understanding. And I think that you've kind of uh, inverted things—you've you, sort of put them on their head. Where we would think of we, we would think of the anti-historical as being the historical, but in fact, you're arguing that the way that we the way that we encounter all of these things, whether it's the study of history itself, whether it's the way that we understand the world that we live in, it is framed by this sort of static system, and that's what we need to get away from.
1: Uh, or at least understand um so i am not big on uh telling people uh what to do here um i i give my ideas but but I, you, that's a fairly good um take on what it is that i'm getting at here we can bring it back to the west though um it gets to um Mar- in a sense to uh, marx versus uh uh western economists. Because Marx came from a different philosophical um, uh, uh, history, he came from Hegel, but he he, he um, um, took uh, there was a different these issues. The issues of time um, and static time were um, under discussion to be uh, developed uh, uh, in de- in the few decades after Marx lived. But Marx Marx came from a different philosophical perspective that is incommensurable with the Western economic worldview. And this is one of the reasons why Western economists um, who try to address uh, Marx don't get it. They, they can't understand, um, um, or, or I won't say they can't understand. When, when uh, Western economists try to put Marxian ideas into their frame, which they do, Um, uh, what gets lost is this different conception of time and the way that it relates to how people exist in the world. And so, for instance, Karl Marx has the labor theory of value um, that is completely cluttered when it's translated into um, the Western mainstream, if if you will, or capitalist um, uh, economic frame. But it makes real sense, and it makes intuitive sense, once um, the challenge is made to the conception of time and the notion of history that Western economists are laboring under, and it, it, it's—I say it's intuitive because I can find this all the time in my life when I uh, speak with people um, in, in the West, in the U.S. and whatnot, where they have an intuitive understanding that money doesn't solve the thing. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't end the transaction. There are these residuals. Um, to use um, uh, an analogy that that um, should be easy to relate to, in, in the movie um, Doc Hollywood, a kind of silly movie, there's a scene there where uh, the, this person's uh, fence is mowed down. And there's a discussion of whether the insurance company is going to pay for the fence. And the person who built the fence, this judge, says, you can't pay me for a fence that I built with my own hands. It can't be done. And this is an intuitive way of explaining um, what isn't accounted for, if you will, in um, the Western economic notion of transactions and also the Western economic notion of what labor is and how it ties to product. And this gets back to the different conceptions of time as well. And I spend a fair bit of time with, the, with this and what labor is and how Marx's uh, theory of labor really works with a different conception of time. The challenge is that so much groundwork has to be laid, for um, a conversation to be had with uh, most people, Western political philosophers, social philosophers, economists, etc., that the goal of the book was to try to lay that out there. And so for the people who are willing to uh, 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 go through it, we, we can have an informed conversation that, if, if for economists, for instance, about Marx's labor theory of value. But without this different understanding of, of uh, time and the different philosophical premises to go into it, there's nowhere to take that. And to put that into uh, plainer terms, um, there's no way to have a conversation about politics when Democrats versus Republicans is the realm of possible political discussion. We have to say that there's a larger uh, realm of political possibility than Democrats versus Republicans, and figure out how to uh, act within that larger realm. Because as long as we're acting in the narrow realm, we're doomed. And this is the point that I'm trying to make about um, uh, capitalist solutions to environmental destruction and problems like nuclear weapons, which are frankly tied to this capitalist worldview, um, uh, and I spend a fair bit of time uh, with this in the book, tying these together. But until we can uh, step outside of the narrow um, our, uh, realms of discourse that we have, then we're not going to be able to find workable solutions. And. I I'm sure this has occurred to you a lot of times as well. The entire purpose of these n- narrow realms of uh, uh, discussion, political action, what have you, is to prevent um, uh, uh, resolution in favor of what is important to most people. Um, uh, Democrats versus Republicans is to benefit uh, you know, one per- 1% of 1% of the population, but let's say maybe 10% of... Uh, the American population, and it's to um prevent any kind of political resolution for the other ninety nine percent ninety percent however you want to divide the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the realm of interest and, okay. and so uh, creating uh the possibility of a discourse on the outside of these narrow discourses is uh, necessarily requires taking apart these narrow discourses. And that's really what I spent a lot of energy on in the book.
0: It's absolutely essential. and I think the book does a great job of that. And I'm not just saying that. I highly recommend people pick up a copy of the book and get it directly from Counterpunch Zen Economics uh, by Rob Urie, an absolutely essential read. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pick it up there on the other side of the break. Listeners, stick with us a short break and we will be right back. Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Rob Urie again. The book, absolutely essential to pick it up. Zen Economics. So much, so much there. I mean, you heard it just in the beginning of our discussion. I mean, it's. It's not even really a book about economics in and of itself. It, it really kind of encapsulates so many different issues. And actually, one of the issues that I thought would be really uh, important for us to touch on uh, here in this conversation, it has to do with this question of wealth. And specifically, one of the points that gets made in this book, I think quite forcefully and quite effectively, is this is this idea that um, there's a difference between the, quote, "Quote unquote generation of wealth and the relocation of wealth, and in in fact, the point that you make, Rob, is that capitalism doesn't actually generate wealth so much as it relocates the wealth. And one of the one of the things that strikes me in in sort of unpacking that concept is this fact that that is in in many ways one of the um." let's call it the underlying aspects of imperialism and that imperialism is not just about quote unquote generating wealth. It is about stealing wealth and colonialism and uh, colonized peoples as being the victims whose wealth has been quote unquote relocated. And now if we take that one step further, we see that much of that imperialism has now been brought home and we see many of the same tactics being employed against people people of color, people in marginalized communities, immigrant communities, those who are in many ways uh, vulnerable. So in, in a sense, we now have colonized peoples whose wealth is being, quote-unquote, relocated. That is an interesting concept that you, uh, I think, play with quite successfully in this book.
1: Uh, yeah, thanks, Eric. I um, try to address the relation of imperialism to capitalism I got through a bit of history there, but I, what I uh, really tried to do was to un- unpack a lot of the premises that go into um, what wealth is, and um, and as you mentioned, uh, through history, uh, a lot of the um, great fortunes, um, as the saying goes, are, are, have a crime behind them, but um, more broadly have... Um, Broad uh, state uh, effort, uh, state capitalist, state uh, w- whatever uh, economic configuration you want to apply to that, that adds up to imperialism. And uh, so we have the enforcement arm, which would be the state, and then we have the procurement arm, which would be uh, the people who go out and plunder. And so in um, er- early. Um, uh, the stages of capitalism, uh, yeah, I forget Marxist term, but, but um, there is this historical development of imperialism into capitalism, and uh, the way that I try to um, tie uh, capitalism in, or capitalist economics in particular, is as scientific economic production. And so this is where the the concept of static time comes in, where history is erased. And so the relation of the the historical development of imperialism into capitalism is largely erased through the static concept of time that places this all in the present. And you really can't um, uh, uh, bring in historical continuity when there's this disjunction through concept of time that places everything in the present. And that's one of the uh, uh, political uh, tactics slash accomplishments of, of Western economics is to erase the past. Um, but to, to take a step back here, the very idea of wealth and accumulation um, uh, uh, arises through different historical con- historical configurations, um, there was, of course, highly concentrated wealth in the uh, Roman Empire and uh, across time. Uh, Interestingly, the Roman Empire was an empire, and the French Empire uh, where there was mass uh, concentrated wealth was an empire as well. And so there's this historical development, and what capitalist economists did was they um, uh, claimed, uh, laid claim uh, to the idea that uh, people are naturally acquisitive, and this sets up a whole um, um, uh, uh, way of understanding the world that people that is uh, that's culturally embedded for us. Uh, it would be it would seem common sense to most Americans that people are naturally acquisitive, that we want stuff, and that uh, stuff is uh, that wanting stuff comes natural to us. Uh, in the uh, American sense, which uh, has been uh, shoved out to the to the rest of the um, Western world, it took a hundred years to create uh, modern consumer culture. Um, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky dealt with uh, uh, some of Edward Bernays's work in manufacturing consent, but Edward Bernays, uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, nephew, uh, invented uh, public public relations, which turned into advertising. And the last century uh, in the U.S. has been dedicated to creating this consumer culture. There's nothing natural about it at all. And so there's this historical misdirection that ties um, uh, particular fortunes uh, to uh, a a base human characteristic of acquisitiveness. And this is a sleight of hand that's accomplished by Western economists by... um, Decontextualizing people. I mean, we can look at the empires that existed, and then look at the rest of human existence to the extent that any of this is knowable. But uh, to the extent that it is knowable, there were plenty. There have been plenty of cultures where acquisition hasn't been um, uh, a, a social value, a cultural value, if you will. And um, this lust for stuff, uh, Marx called it commodity fetish. But um, this lust, lust for stuff, it played no role in thousands and thousands of years of, of uh, existence, of uh, uh, historical existence. And so um, the, the very idea of wealth um, uh, is tied to a particular set of cultural values. It's not, it, it, again, if we look outside of uh, this Western inculcation of, of economic values and the circular relation between um, the values that developed historically and those that are uh, taken and placed in static time by economists, there's nothing natural about wealth acquisition, and people aren't naturally acquisitive. And if we were, there would have been no need for the last century of public relations and advertising and marketing, which is uh, uh, anti capitalist in a major way. Mm-hmm. uh the a base premise of capitalism is is free will this is uh, part of what ties um uh, uh capitalism ever so um uh improbably to uh democracy and uh, mid 20th century social philosophy, um uh, generally the right wing But um, once this is taken apart and we see that, uh, uh, forgive me for the wee, but um, the the, the argument is made that um, uh, wealth, there's nothing natural about wealth, there's nothing natural about wealth acquisition. This isn't a fundamental human characteristic. It is, however, uh, very much an historical artifact of uh, particular cultures. Uh, these being Western imperial cultures. And the brilliant consequence, in addition, for for people who have the opportunity, if you go to London and Dublin and different um, capitals around Europe, you, you can see uh, where the wealth concentrated from, because these are super-rich neighborhoods. They're just, they're just fantastically Um, uh, You you can see the history of of wealth accumulation in in Italy and uh, in Venice and and, uh, London and these different places. The point that I'm making is that um, there is this particular um, uh, historical development of imperialism that ties, uh, going into the First World War, uh, it ties... um, uh, absolutely catastrophic wars of the 20th century, uh, Western wars of the 20th century, to uh, imperial conquest and mm-hmm. to battles, uh, battle over resources. And uh, we take uh, that uh, th- past the First World War into the Second World War, and we've got the, essentially a continuation of the First World War, uh with the development uh the innovation of uh, bombing uh, civilian populations essentially ma- total destruction that uh, that was brought into uh, the the world that I grew up in which uh, my adult life started with vietnam war and so this is the um, uh, consequence of uh, wealth production as much as the rich neighborhoods in Venice and the rich neighborhoods in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I try to tie this together through this approach to the world um, that that ties as well to historical, historical development in the book. But the broad point would be is there's not, nothing that natural about wealth acquisition. Uh, there's historical development. There are historical instances of um, wealth accumulation. But without Stepping back and getting rid of this consumer culture, which is inculcated. It's a, it, if it were natural, there would be no need for advertising. There would be no need for marketing. It's not natural. But what it does is it creates uh, this cultural um, um, uh, demand, if you will, uh, this, this, culturally, this deeply embedded uh, cultural no- notion of the self as acquisitive. And voila, consumer culture was created. And it's the consumer culture that has to be undone uh, for there to be environmental resolution. And I would argue the approach to the world um, that is uh, 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 capitalism that ties this consumer culture in this history of imperialism is directly related to the creation of nuclear weapons, these Armageddon um, uh, instruments. Uh, and so. Something as simple as the concept of time ties in important ways to these uh, world-important events.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. And um, one of the things that struck me as I was reading uh, through the book and actually getting to some of the, some of the issues that you were just sort of um, uh, laying out there is this notion of imperialism. And obviously I have a particular uh, interest in that direction. It's, it's, it's what I focus on to a large extent. And, um, you know, as I was reading your work, it was almost like I couldn't help but think about, you know, Lenin and, you know, the, the famous work, Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, and as you're laying out everything that has happened since, you know, uh, the early part of the 20th century when he wrote the book, since the first, you know, 15 years of the 20th century, you begin to see that essentially, uh, you know, in, in, in one sense, your book could kind of sort of be called, you know, Neo-Imperialism and Neo-Colonialism even higher stages of capitalism because in effect, everything that Lenin was talking about in terms of the uh the exploitation of the third world in terms of the uh competition between the imperial powers over the colonized world and so forth everything that that, that he had laid out has sort of been magnified and and in in some ways centralized since that point and taken to an even greater degree and and throughout the book you talk about you know uh, the period that we often refer to as neoliberalism as sort of the 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 reclamation of capitalism or the resurrection of capitalism after the Keynesian New Deal period, in a sense, going to that quote unquote higher stage of capitalism.
1: Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of tying um, these things together, uh, Eric. I, 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 Lenin understood uh, most of the modern world. Um, uh, the the relation of imperialism to capitalism that you mentioned. I I would suggest that uh, Lenin, Lenin, uh, like uh, uh, Marx, uh, was coming from a different set of cultural premises. um, And I I don't want to grossly oversimplify here, but um, uh, uh, coming from a uh, Hegelian-slash-Marxian materialist uh, uh, approach to the world, versus uh, this Western, uh, Cartesian way of seeing the world. And the reason why I mention that is because um, there's a raging debate uh, amongst uh, economists, heterodox economists, the people who think about things outside of the mainstream box, but uh, over whether neoliberalism is uh, something new and different from the historical development of capitalism or whether it ties... um, to um, this historical development. And I'm most certainly in the camp that it ties to this historical development that, um, that um, there are um, uh, differences that have to do with the um, uh, relative stability of American capitalism where people really, neoliberal true believers really haven't been challenged. Um, they, uh, Gra- Antonio Gramsci, the uh, Italian uh, theorist, had the concept of hegemony mm-hmm. as um, a dominant social philosophy that is just below the surface, that's understood in, in maybe the back of our brains, not necessarily the front of our brains, but that supports um, the established way of doing things. And
0: so the, um, the it, implicit, it, the implicit acceptance of a system.
1: Implicit acceptance of the system. Um, Okay, yeah, I'll take that. Um, And um, so there has been this relative stability of uh, Western capitalism where um, people, theorists, economists, and politicians have been able to have these remarkably narrow discussions and to be able to separate the consequences of their policies from um, their knowledge of the consequences of the policies. And therefore, uh, capitalism, as uh, in the modern economic sense, as scientific economic production, uh, morphed into neoliberalism, which is uh, less scientific in the sense that evidence doesn't really get back into this feedback loop. Uh, the, the failures of capital, capitalism uh, don't necessarily come back to cause neoliberals to reconsider. Uh, their uh, positions, but, but there is an alternative or there are alternative explanations for that matter. And I lay this out in the book. Uh, this is a way that a lot of people get by in the world. They earn livings doing this. They find social recognition. Uh, there are uh, liberal economists who have done very well, uh, essentially restating the uh, capitalist economics of 1926, Um, um, They they write columns for the New York Times And they've done uh, well for themselves uh, um, Socially, uh, academically, economically And all that But um, uh, at the end of the day uh, This is uh, The existing system in the U.S. Is uh, As Lenin put it together From Marx uh, This uh, state capitalist mix It's uh, The state exists to serve uh, um, uh, uh, wealthy owners of um, uh, corporations and uh, different forms of um, uh, abstract capital, and um, and the managers who uh, have been uh, fairly clever at enriching themselves. This is back to the one percent of one percent, or the ten percent, or however you want to. Right. Divide the consequence, the 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 spoils here, but uh, Lin fairly really well articulated um, the historical development here, and I don't see a major divergence. I really don't. This is still with Barack Obama trying to pass the TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade deal, against um, so-called liberal opposition. Uh, this is uh, straight uh, state service uh, to um, the wealthy. Uh, and and powerful as Lennon laid it out uh, with modern innovations, but I believe that Lenin explained it
0: really well. I totally agree, and I I, I always say even even when I was working with students and at the high school level, I always said that that is one of the most important texts you could ever read. It's one it was one that was uh, really kind of a cornerstone for me in my own development and my own interest in these issues. Um, I could go on for hours just on on Lenin and the question of imperialism and capitalism, but we're almost out of time, and I want to touch on two last things. Now one, one point I want to say, and I'm not just blowing smoke here, so you know I, I'm I'm saying this because I really do mean it. Um, Despite the fact that the book is is loaded with a lot of weighty concepts it's loaded with a lot of history a lot of facts a lot of uh information there is still some uh some 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 rather some rather beautiful prose some rather uh um engaging writing and I just want to pick one out and I want to see if I can um Get your take on it, or maybe ask you to explain it a little bit because I kind of reread it a few times and I don't remember where I pulled this from. It might have even been from the introduction. But you wrote, quote, freedom as psychic artifact is to choose from among available alternatives, not to create them. I thought that was really interesting and in sort of a way of almost. Encapsulating one of the dimensions of this problem that you've taken an entire book to talk
1: about—that's uh, exactly on point. the The way that Western economics, um, both as an academic practice, but really as an embedded social philosophy, uh, proceeds is um, as is to see people as fundamentally reactive. Now, this is partly technical uh, in that it, it's the only way that um, the Cartesian concept of time and the Cartesian duality can be made operational. Um, there has to be this inside-outside, and um, the only way that that works um, uh, is, uh, is through, uh, if, if, if it's considered to also exist in the world, uh, is to have it exist on multiple planes one of which is static. And so um, and so people are considered to be reactive, uh, meaning not creative. And uh, Marx uh, went through uh, his conception, which he later didn't have a lot of patience for, in I think it was the 1844 Manuscripts. Where he's coming from a fundamentally different perspective, but where he's articulating a creative person uh, that how labor should be a fundamentally creative act, and how uh, capitalist enterprise turns it into this rote, um, uh, reactive. Essentially, you do you go and you do a task that you're told to do, and it's anti-creative in the sense that you're spending all this time doing something that. Uh, fits into uh, this broader project not of your making and that there's um, and it's anti-creative in that sense and um, this is uh, as I mentioned partly a technical artifact of the way that western economists work but it's also been put into practice where uh, Marx went through how difficult it was to get workers to show up at factories in the early days um, in the U.S. and Australia because people could go and do other things. I mean, there are all, all kinds of other issues with that settler colonialism and, and, and what have you. But the, the basic point is that um, uh, this reactive kind of work is anti-creative, but it is the fundamental economic premise about how we exist together in an economy. We uh, show up and we do what we're told. Um, the question of how um, uh, this is all created, how how who gets to uh, tell us what to do, um, gets into this uh, uh, um, uh, permanent regress, infinite regress, um, uh, a logical circle that that I actually deal with later in the book. But this is one of the fundamental problems: is that uh, the way that capitalism. Poses human existence is as reactive. Um, there, there's no explanation for uh, the historical development of markets. Um, uh, there's no conception of creative labor, and this has been reconstituted as the way that we exist in the world. Most work that most people do, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do if there weren't this complex system of, of um, uh, compensation and and property rights that make it so that you can't live anywhere if you don't pay for a place to live.
0: Yep, it's a uh, form of coercion, really.
1: It's not. It's absolutely coercion, but it's coercion posed as freedom, as free exactly. choice.
0: It's Coke or Pepsi. It's Democrat or Republican. Don't you love choice? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that, that's That's really um, the, the the reaction, the define the tightly defined realm of possibility that unless we get past, we uh, um, with environmental and nuclear and whatever problems are not long for this planet.
0: Yeah, right. All right. So we're just about out of time. I got about about three more minutes. I want to just get uh, one last uh, one last thing in here. Um when I, when I sat down to read the book, I was not sure exactly what I was getting into. I, I'm like, you know, what I know about you, what I know about your writing, I was like, oh my God, am I about to walk into a theory of everything book? You know, and um, it's not really that. It's actually very different from sort of these many attempts at sort of an economic theory of everything. It's I, I, I don't know how to articulate it other than to say that it's almost... Um, I felt like the book was, rather than a theory of everything, it was more a Reconceptualization of economics, not as something all you know altogether new, but rather economics as an expression of everything else, an expression of the climate crisis, an expression of the the crisis of war and the military industrial complex and all of the complex machinery that goes into that. It was an an expression of privatization and uh, and all of these other phenomenon that we see that we associate with neoliberalism so um how do you see the function of the book i think that it would be a mistake to see it as a theory of everything but it is certainly an attempt to reconceptualize things
1: right the, it, it there's no effort to create a theory of everything um that, that's an interesting take that i'll have to um think about a little bit But um, so let me frame it uh, in a way that makes sense to me, and that is um, there's been historical development and historians, historians and people with an interest in history can argue over the details and whatnot. But there has been historical development that has gone along in time and in culture, geography, cultural geography, et et cetera. Uh, that ties particular uh, um, branches of philosophy to particular views of the world that tie to particular historical events and historical development. Um, And and so what I go through in the book is uh, an attempt to uh, tie the uh, philosophy to this historical development. And... uh, the the goal there is number one to make the philosophy less abstract, number two to um, make an association, and then number three to um, try try to come to a set of conclusions that are um, uh, that both make sense and are actionable. And so it's not a theory of everything at all. I'm go- I'm going through particular Western uh, philosophy and Western history to make a set of relations that. I tie um, uh, through the philosophy and through history to uh, some of the big problems that we have. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and so. the, the question is, is, without the philosophy, uh, how can we understand the history? And without the history, how can we understand the philosophy? And without the two of them together, how can we um, look at um, uh, where Western history, Western culture, The set of problems that we have evolved uh, with and into, um, how can they be understood in a way that uh, might allow us to step outside of the causes of these problems? And that would be a different philosophical understanding of the world, a different set of material relations that we have um, to uh, come up with some real uh, solutions. And I'm not suggesting that velocity uh, is going to change the world. It takes people acting to change the world. But how do we get to an actionable view of the world that's constructive? As we mentioned earlier, Democrats and Republicans have the solutions in a little package for us there that aren't solutions. And so we can't rely on that. We can't rely on the existing institutions to feed us solutions. We have to. And I mean everybody listening and everybody listening, everybody they know. How can we uh, together figure out how to uh, solve these problems and then solve them? And so without taking the thing apart, I, I don't know how to step outside of the Democrats versus Republicans, the U.S. versus the, uh some other country, uh, these narrow—and so it's not a philosophy of everything. It's an attempt to tie specific responsibility through history and through philosophy to the specific problems we have in, in an effort to resolve them.
0: Very well said. Again, the book, you got to pick it up. Zen Economics by Rob Urie. Uh, fascinating read. It's not super dense as far as numbers and traditional economic stuff. So if you're like me and get bored, if it's, uh, you know, the mainstream economic crap, this is not what you're getting into when you get this book. Again, you could pick it up directly through Counterpunch. And again, a reason why I say Counterpunch is so important because it brings us things like Rob Yuri's book, Zen Economics economics so uh with that rob i want to thank you again for coming on the show hopefully we can have you back in the near future thank you eric and listeners thanks again as always for tuning in thanks for sticking with me patiently these last few weeks and we are back on track with lots more good episodes coming in the in the uh in the coming weeks. so uh as always thanks again talk to you soon